Hello and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for Volume 1, Issues 11 and 12, sponsored by Molecular Devices. I'm Sarah Tagan, Managing Editor for the journal. I'm joined by science writer Eva Gordon. Welcome, Eva. Hello, everyone. We are pleased to announce that ACS Chemical Biology has been approved for indexing in Medline. Our content is being indexed, and you can expect to see the abstracts of our papers appear in PubMed very soon. Availability in PubMed, ISI Web of Science, and Chemical Abstracts databases, as well as crawling by Google, ensures that the journal's content and your research is readily accessible to biologists and chemists worldwide. In this podcast, we feature articles from the labs of Mike Burkhart, Mary Kay Flum, Hitta Plu, Eddie Arnold, Lane Hong Sun, Peter Beal, Kayvon Chilkat, and David Sherman. We'll be speaking with Mike Burkhart, Mary Kay Flum, Eddie Arnold, and David Sherman later in the podcast, but first we want to highlight some interesting content you'll find only on our website. I'm delighted to welcome back Rebecca Heald, our featured expert. Dr. Heald has been answering reader-submitted questions on mitosis and spindle assembly since October. She's a professor of cell and developmental biology at the University of California at Berkeley and studies the molecular components that contribute to mitosis. What other sorts of tools do you foresee needing to be able to better understand mitosis? Well, it would be really useful to have more small molecule inhibitors, you know, chemical compounds that act really um, specifically. Um, And there's a couple ways of of generating these compounds. Um, First, you can screen for... uh, inhibitors of spindle assembly. You can start with a library of compounds and then find a compound that gives you an interesting effect on spindle assembly. And the cool thing about this is that you can then sort of try to find the molecular target of this compound by doing some biochemistry with the extract. You can take that compound, couple it to a matrix, add the extract, and see what proteins bind from the extract to try to figure out what the target could be. It would be great to have more specific inhibitors that we could add because it's not always easy to inhibit a protein if you want to study its role in chromosome segregation, but it also functions during spindle assembly. If you deplete it, you can't detect any anaphase role because you don't get a spindle in the first place. Um, But if you can add something right at anaphase onset, you can study how it's functioning at that phase of the cell cycle. Thank you for answering our questions, Rebecca. I know that all of our readers have really appreciated your thoughtful answers. Thank you very much. This month's ChemBioGlossary keyword is snare protein, which was a keyword in a review by Dickerson and Janda. Snare protein is an acronym for soluble N-ethylmalleamide sensitive factor attachment receptor. These proteins make up a large superfamily whose primary function is to mediate vesicle fusion in mammalian and yeast cells. Issues 11 and 12 of ACS Chemical Biology feature nine exciting research papers. To learn more about the junior authors of these papers, please see the Introducing Our Authors feature in print and on the web. This new section of the journal helps us reach out to people who work in the labs and perform the majority of the experiments and put a face with a name. In these two issues, we meet 12 young scientists. Read our new section and get a younger chemical biologist perspective on their research. We are happy to have Eddie Arnold here with us today to discuss his paper with Daniel Himmel and Stefan Serafiano, reporting the crystal structure of the HIV-1 reverse transcriptase in a complex with dihydroxybenzoyl-naphthol hydrazone, which is an inhibitor of RNA's activity. The reverse transcriptase of HIV-1 is an essential enzyme for viral replication and contains both DNA polymerase and RNA's activity. Now, to date, all HIV-1 
reverse transcriptase inhibitors target the DNA polymerase activity of this enzyme. Eddie, does your inhibitor work like other reverse transcriptase inhibitors by inhibiting the polymerase activity? The answer is no. In fact, um, DHBNH, which is the abbreviation for the compound, um, is actually a specific inhibitor of RNAsH activity. Turns out that reverse transcriptase is a multifunctional enzyme, and so it catalyzes both polymerization and RNAsH. What RNAsH is um, is an activity uh, involved in chopping up RNA when it's present in RNA-DNA hybrids. The key uh, piece of information to know about it is that it's really the fourth enzyme of HIV. And as you know, the enzymes are very, very good drug targets. And so polymerase, in other words, RT, or reverse transcriptase, proteates, and more recently integrase, are key targets for anti-AIDS drug development. Uh, we believe that RNA-SH activity, which is, again, a secondary activity of reverse transcriptase, is a wonderful target for antiviral development, and that, in fact, is what DHBNH inhibits. So using the interactive 3D figures that are available with this article, I can see that the inhibitor is not binding near the RNA's uh, active site. And so where, where is it binding and what does it do there? So this is one of the unexpected uh, outcomes of our study. We were surprised when we located the binding of the compound near the polymerase active site, which is more than uh, 60 or so angstroms away from the RNA-SH active site. Typically, when you inhibit a given activity, you might expect the, the small molecule uh, agent doing that to be binding near the uh, active site. But in fact, it's binding quite a bit further away. And so we're trying to understand how the inhibition works at a distance. So there are actually quite a few aspects of that. One is that it's possible that there's more than one binding site for the compound and that we're seeing a, a binding site that's relevant for other inhibitory activities. The other is that the binding at the particular site that we see is actually responsible for the RNA-SH inhibition. But uh, this is what we're trying to clarify further. In any case, the binding at the site is particularly valuable, we think, because in fact this is a new target for antiviral development. Reverse transcriptase inhibitors are among the most important drugs used for treating AIDS. Virtually every combination of, of drugs that's used for treating HIV infection includes reverse transcriptase inhibitors. So we feel that compounds that target the binding site that we've discovered through this work, whether or not the inhibit polymerase or RNA-SH activity will turn out to be very valuable. So using this the information that you've um, gained from solving this crystal structure, have you been able to identify any other related inhibitors or use this information to help in perhaps in the design of other inhibitors? Another very good question. One of the goals of structure determination where one looks at the binding of an inhibitor to an enzyme, which might be a drug target, is to get information about three-dimensional structure that can be used to 
guide the design of new compounds that bind to that site and perhaps have more potent or selective activity. And um, our collaborator, Dr. Michael Parniak at the University of Pittsburgh, who's the architect of this particular compound, the DHBNH, and related in RNAsH inhibitors, has already been using the information to guide the synthesis of new derivatives, and uh, some of these have increased potency. So um, the answer is yes, the information is all already being used to guide novel design. I do want to comment on another very important implication of this type of work, which is that the real challenge in developing drugs for treating HIV infection and to, for the development of anti-AIDS therapeutics is to find compounds that work well in the context of drug resistance. All of the available compounds, when used broadly, lead to the selection of drug-resistant variants of the virus. One of the uh, extraordinarily important um, implications of new classes of inhibitors, particularly that work against a different target, is that they work against existing drug-resistant variants. So especially important to keep in mind is that when you have infectious disease agents such as HIV, you're actually dealing with a moving target, and you have to take that into account or one will fail badly. Well, Eddie, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your interest in this. We're happy to have David Sherman here today to talk about his paper that he co-authored with Nathan McGarvey and Zach Beck that describes the characterization of the biosynthetic pathway for cryptophysins, a class of natural products from the blue-green algae that often have potent anti-cancer properties. David, what did you learn about this biosynthetic pathway? Well, first of all, uh, we learned that it was uh, very difficult to find because the organism itself, Nostoc, uh, species uh, ATCC53789 has a, a very large genome, and it turns out to have a large number of secondary metabolite pathways uh, encoded in that genome. So it started out being uh, somewhat of trying to find a needle in a haystack because we had a target pathway for the cryptophysins. Turned out there were many additional pathways with uh, similar genetic components, and uh, it became a big challenge to try to actually localize the biosynthetic gene cluster. Once we had that in hand, of course, then uh, we were confident that there were some very interesting biochemical uh, aspects to the to this metabolic pathway that uh, we would be. Uh, wanting to follow up. So <clears throat> what is important about this pathway is, um, first of all, we had to use a, a subtractive genomic approach to actually localize it. And one of the very fortunate things that happened is a very close relative of the cryptophysin producer uh, is an organism whose genome had actually been sequenced. And the name of that organism is Nostoc punctiformi. It has about a 10 megabase genome. And when we started this project, it had just been completed and was in the database. And 
uh, Nathan McGarvey decided to look at that genome and discovered that there were large segments that remained unannotated. And it turned out that all of those segments corresponded to secondary metabolite gene clusters. And um, we decided then to use that set of secondary metabolite gene clusters as a template to compare against uh, its close relative, the cryptophysin producers. And in the end, uh, it turned out that overall, the only unique biosynthetic pathway to the cryptophysin producer is the cryptophysin pathway itself. So we were able to go through and actually compare pathway by pathway between the two organisms. And we would get sequence from something that could potentially be the cryptophysin gene cluster. We would then see if a essentially the same set of genes were present in the Nasdaq punctiformi strain as genome had been sequenced. And if the answer was yes, then we knew it was the wrong thing. And uh, eventually we were able to find a unique cosmid clone uh, that was not present in Nasdaq punctiformi, and that one turned out to be the cryptophysin biosynthetic pathway. One big challenge of the cryptophysins, um, it's difficult to obtain large quantities of them because the Nasdaq species itself is not amenable to fermentation. And the way to get these anti-cancer drugs, especially when they were recognized as leads and went into clinical trials, uh, synthetic chemists really had to do the job, and a significant number of synthetic chemistry groups got involved in this and uh, did complete uh, some very nice uh, total syntheses, but they're quite long, they're low yield, and some of the steps are, are, uh, are especially low yield and unselective. And, and one of those key steps is uh, the epoxidation. And the epoxide, which is essential for biological activity, represented one of the poorest steps in synthetic, uh, in the synthetic chemical process. And we, uh, of course, expected once we had the pathway sequence that we would be able to identify the epoxidase which would likely be in the form of a cytochrome P450. And sure enough, when we were uh, finishing up the sequencing, we came across the cytochrome P450. There is a single gene encoding a P450, and we are able to overexpress that and purify it and show that it very efficiently converts the desoxy uh, precursor uh, to the uh, epoxidized uh, product in quantitative yield and uh, one desired um, stereochemistry. So that uh, was a, a very big step in terms of developing new ways to synthesize the cryptophysins using taking advantage of uh, the enzymes that are involved in their biosynthesis. Let me ask you one final question. Do your studies here give you any other insights into how you can make the compounds more effective? So, for example, you know some of these compounds have toxicity issues, and, right. and you're, I think, just beginning to look at some analogs. So what, what have you learned from those studies so far? At the moment, we, we have a, a variety of new compounds, and uh, we'll be evaluating them in, in terms of their 
biological activity, uh, it takes a significant amount of work to actually evaluate them in terms of toxicity. But um, we certainly will have access to many new compounds. A lot more is understood now about how to improve the solubility of these compounds by making glycinate esters. And um, much of, of the uh, progress that uh, now needs to be made can be made um, with access to uh, larger quantities of these compounds that we believe uh, we can make available through chemoenzymatic synthesis. So it's a little too early to tell um, which of these analogs will be the best, but um, there is going to be certainly a very large number uh, to test, and we're, we're confident that we'll be able to find at least one if not more, that show great promise. Well, that's great. You definitely uh, have come a long way in being able to do that. So um, thanks so much for joining us, David. Okay, thank you. Okay. In a paper by Manglika Warsaka and Mary Kay Flum, the authors devise a new way to search for phosphorylated proteins. Reversible phosphorylation of proteins is a key mechanism by which signaling networks that control a host of cellular processes are regulated. In fact, deregulated phosphorylation of proteins can lead to a number of diseases, including many types of cancer, so understanding cellular phosphorylation could lead to new treatments for many illnesses. And now we have Mary Kay Flum on the line with us to answer some of our questions. Hi, Mary Kay. Hi. So, Mary Kay, how are phosphorylated substances currently identified in, in cells? Sure. So there are a number of ways that scientists generally uh, characterize these phosphopeptides or phosphoproteins. Mass spec analysis is, is really powerful because it's very sensitive. And in addition to that, you are able to pretty easily discriminate a phosphoprotein from an unphosphorylated protein simply by looking at the difference in the mass of your proteins. Of course, a phosphoprotein being heavier than the unphosphorylated protein. But the challenges associated with mass spec are, are pretty challenging. Uh, one of them is that you get a, usually a sea of unphosphorylated proteins uh, when you're really trying to look at the phosphorylated protein. So you're really looking for sort of a needle in a haystack. And this issue is further complicated by the fact that you get a, what's, what's called ion suppression with the mass spec. Several methods have been developed to allow for you to selectively enrich in a phosphorylated peptide. That way, you can imagine you'd simplify your mass spec analysis and you'd have a more efficient technique. So um, a few ways have been developed to do this enrichment. One is to use antibodies. And so as an alternative, um, a method that's, that allows for you to, to look at all phosphopeptides um, is the use of uh, Im immobilized metal affinity chromatography, also known as IMAC. And in this technique, you use uh, a metal to non-covalently interact with your phosphopeptides, and that allows for you to enrich in them. Um, the issue with IMAC is that it's not selective. It, it tends to pull out unphosphorylated peptides in addition to your phosphopeptides. So what would be better is if you could create a new chemistry, a new method that would allow for you to more selectively enrich for your, your fossil proteins and not your unphosphorylated proteins. And so covalent chemistries have been developed. And, and really our chemistry that we discuss in the paper is one of these where we, we have a covalent tether to a fossil peptide that allows for a selective enrichment. 
that sounds that sounds great. It sounds like a really nice chemical biology approach. So can you describe in a little more detail how your new method works? We were very much inspired by previous covalent chemistry that, that have been reported in the literature, and, and there aren't that many techniques. There's, there's maybe a handful of ways to do this covalent modification. And, uh, but we were, we were looking, uh, when we started this project, we were really looking for a method that would, would allow for us to, um, to overcome some of the, the limitations of the previous chemistries. That is, we were hoping to find a chemistry that would allow for us to look at all phosphopeptides, phosphothrenine, phosphocerine, and phosphotyrosine-containing peptides, which has been sort of the limitation in, with the other chemistries. And so what we did is we actually went back to the literature. And what we happened upon when we did this literature search is some very uh, interesting work by Mukiyama back in the early 70s, where they were able to show that they could get uh, relatively high-yielding alkylations, of, direct alkylations of phosphates um, using an oxidation reduction condensation. And so we thought that, and in addition to that, Mukiyama also showed that, he, that this oxidation reduction condensation was compatible with peptides. So we kind of put two and two together, and we thought, all right, it, the chemistry is uh, compatible with peptides. It allows for you to modify phosphates. Let's see if we can use this chemistry to directly covalently modify phosphopeptides so that we could ultimately use it for enrichment. And so, you know, really inspired by this this. Uh, older chemistry, we use the oxidation reduction condensation um, in solution to show, in, in the paper we show that you can use this condensation in solution to modify all three of the uh, phosphate-containing amino acids. Um, and then in, in kind of the most exciting part of the paper, we're able to show that you can use the oxidation reduction condensation to covalently tether phosphocerine, phosphocerine, or phosphotyrosine-containing peptides and enrich them in a, a relatively complex mixture of peptides. And, and so then what we did is tried to show that you could, you could use this chemistry with a trips and digest of a full-length peptide, and that worked pretty well. And then finally, I mean, with, a, with an experiment that sort of discriminates this chemistry from others, we were able to show that you're able to pull out full-length proteins. And, and we believe this is the first time it's been done uh, that we've been able to pull out full-length proteins with this type of covalent modification chemistry. So y y the idea here is, is that we, by scouring the literature, um, we were able to identify a new reaction that's appropriate for fossil protein enrichment and, and hopefully will um, add to the chemical tools that are available to, to enrich for these types of peptides. And so one more question. Where do you see the... the the best future applications for this technology is it is it usable for high throughput screening? What sorts of other applications? Absolutely. So we have some we have some really um, interesting hopes for this chemistry. So clearly, one of the one of the applications would be and, and one thing that we're pursuing is to use it this chemistry to identify novel phosphopeptides on uh, you know proteins of interest. For example, in our lab, we've been particularly interested in working with a protein called histone deacetylase, and so one of the co-authors of the paper, Pauline. Uh, Karwaska de Zonier is actually working towards using the method to identify novel phospho, phosphorylated sites on histone deacetylase protein. So that's one application. And clearly then her work would then lead us to using it for bonafide phosphoproteomics, that meaning we could take a full lysate and enrich for all the phosphopeptides or phosphoproteins in that lysate and, um, and characterize them. So that's one application. A second application that's actually being pursued by the lead author of the paper, Manglika Warthika, she's actually trying to, to covalently modify the phosphates with other types of, of 
uh, nucleophiles. So in the paper, we discuss using a solid phase resin. She's actually trying to now attach other types of functional groups to the phosphate. For example, you'd imagine you could put a fluorophore onto the phosphate and allow for us to, to, to directly visualize the phosphopeptide. Um, you might be able to install um, uh, an azide containing moiety, so you could do click chemistry, um, w which is a really exciting new technique in chemical biology. So, you know, we really, we, we feel like this chemistry is not only appropriate for phosphopeptide enrichment, which we've been discussing, but also has the potential to lead to new kind of unprecedented chemical techniques to, to understand and characterize the fossil proteome. Well, that sounds great. Thanks so much, Mary Kay. We really look forward to seeing, uh, seeing where this chemistry takes us. Thanks so much. It was fun. Okay. Andrew Worthington and Mike Burkhart generated tools that will aid in the study of a number of biological metabolites. These metabolites, including polyketides, fatty acids, and non-ribosomal proteins, can have important functions, such as antibiotic activity, that make them valuable. Studies of the syntheses of these metabolites have been hampered because the scaffolding required for the construction is incredibly complex. The authors have developed a tool to trap the metabolite attached to its carrier protein and the enzyme working on the complex. And we happen to have Mike Burkhart uh, with us here now to tell us more about his work. So welcome, Mike. Hi. Thanks. Hi. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about how these metabolites are synthesized? Carrier proteins are used in the process, is that right? That's right. So um, this is really a, a fairly small class of enzymes that use carrier proteins. Um, and these are carrier proteins are small proteins. They're about 8 to 10 kilodaltons in size. And they're used kind of as a scaffold to hold on to starting materials and then also to hold on to elongating precursors of natural products. And, and it's really three classes of compounds that are made through these pathways, first being fatty acid uh, biosynthesis, the second being polyketides, as you mentioned, and the third being non-ribosomal peptides. So it's kind of a unique group of biosynthetic proteins because uh, unlike most other primary metabolism, in which you have small independent proteins that catalyze one step in a pathway. In these cases, the, the, the substrates are, are covalently attached to the carrier protein. So you kind of have some, some complications in studying them because not only are you concerned about substrate specificity for the transformations, but you also have a significant amount of protein-protein interaction going on. And I should also mention that these classes also get more complex because some of them, typically we call these a type 1 synthesis, uh, are multi-domain synthases that are all tethered together uh, like beads on a string. And so you've got these enormous synthases, oftentimes anywhere from 200 kilodaltons to 2 megadaltons in size that are, we think of as assembly lines. As you mentioned, they're pretty complex, but they're enormously fascinating as far as biosynthesis is concerned. And you guys have used a particularly innovative, I think, chemical bio biological approach to tackle this problem. Can you tell us a little bit about how your traps work? Sure. Well, we started out back in 2002 when my lab started here at UCSD, focusing on the potification of these synthases. And what happens here is there is 
kind of a prosthetic arm that gets attached to the carrier protein domains. And this arm comes from coenzyme A. So this post-translational modification, there's an enzyme called the phosphopantothenal transferase, or a PPTase, that takes CoA and transfers a, a half of CoA, so basically a phosphate and then this pantothene arm, and attaches it to the carrier protein. And at the end of this phosphopantothene is a thiol terminus, and this is where all the substrates are attached via thioester linkages. So my lab really first started out trying to study the, the permissivity of these transferases to see if we could attach other things other than regular CoA and, and, and make non-hydrolyzable attachments so to incorporate reporter molecules and, and covalently attach them to carrier proteins. We could attach fluorescent molecules and affinity probes uh, and basically showed that you could use this post-translational modification as a nice tool to transfer chemical entities onto these carrier proteins. And, and really what the work we did more recently was to, to basically take this basic approach and to make it a little bit more complicated and that is to not just attach uh, a simple reporter or fluorescent molecule to the end, but actually to attach some type of reactive substrate. And we focused on a mechanism-based inhibitor uh, that had already been uh, well-established for the ketosynthase domains in, in fatty acids and polyketide synthases. So this really stemmed from a natural product called serolinin, which is a... Um, a metabolite from a filamentous fungi, and it's been well studied to inhibit and, and mechanistically inactivate both fatty acids and polyketides by attack of an active site cysteine on an epoxide, therefore inactivating uh, the ketosynthase activity. So we started out by designing an epoxide into this pantothene arm, incorporating it into CoA and then attaching it to carrier proteins. And then seeing once we had attached this mechanism-based inactivator to our carrier protein, whether indeed we would get a cross-linking event between a carrier protein and a ketosynthase. We then went on and made that, rather than making just the epoxide, we made some other mechanism-based substrates that we deduced should react very well with an active site cysteine, that being chloroacrylates both either the cis or the transchloroacrylate attached to the end of pantothene. The, these types, both cis and transchloroacrylates, have been shown to be effective inhibitors of, of cysteine proteases. So we figured that it, those would also work in this situation. What do you envision that these tools will help you, you know, in terms of understanding how these metabolites are, are synthesized? The first thing, and maybe I should, should go on to describe an additional study that's in the paper, is that we said to ourselves, well, okay, we, we have this cross-linking event that's happening. Um, is this just a random event, or is this, could we actually use this as a tool to try to understand protein-protein interactions in this system? So the way we tried to demonstrate that is we said, well, what if we picked carrier proteins from other uh, natural product pathways? So we, we picked carrier proteins, uh, a, a, just a small group of carrier proteins from other pathways, we picked a couple that were coming from type 2 polyketide synthases, so that those types of polyketide synthases are aromatic. They make aromatic molecules, for example, like tetracycline or doxorubicin. And then we picked another two that came out of non-ribosomal peptide systems, two that are responsible for making siderophores, uh, one coming from enterocin, uh, excuse me, enterobactin, and the other coming from vibriobactin biosynthesis. 
Uh, and the idea here is that it's been well established that those type 2 polyketide synthase carrier proteins ha will react with fatty acid synthases from, uh, from prokaryotes, uh, but the, the non-ribosomal peptide synthases do not. So we said, okay, if, if we can put on these uh, mechanism-based inactivators onto all four of these carrier proteins, which one will actually react with our uh, fatty acid ketosynthases? And as it turned out, only the, the polyketide types reacted, whereas the, the non-ribosomal peptide types did not react. So what this told us was that there's actually a significant amount of protein-protein interactions going on here that really dictate what protein pairs can react with each other to allow small molecule processing in these, in these modular systems. So then the idea is that we can use these tools down the line to try to really understand how residue interactions from the, between the carrier protein and the partner protein really um, kind of aid in the specificity of this type of reactivity. And it's going to tell us a lot of information uh, on not only how these, these native systems work, but will also kind of guide us in the future as people try to engineer these systems and try to try to make new molecules what can be learned from these tools will tell us how to engineer things in the future. So I think in, in the short term, we can really learn a lot about how these systems work. Uh, the other thing that, that I'd like to mention is that there's been a lot of interest recently in trying to study these, these large synthases uh, structurally. So for instance, there have been some, some really beautiful papers that came out recently uh, in science by uh, the, the, the BAN group from, um, from Switzerland in which they, they showed the architecture of both the fungal and mammalian fatty acid the synthesis. The crystal structures were, were resolved to a five angstrom resolution, so you could really see how the architecture looks. Uh, but what's interesting is that both the, the carrier protein domain and the cyoesterase domain in these synthases were completely unresolved. Uh, and because they're such dynamic structures, there was no way to actually obtain uh, the structural information for those domains on these proteins. Uh, our tools should be able to actually link those things up and tie them down such that we could maybe use these to get more rigid protein complexes and therefore do some sophisticated structural work and understand how these systems look uh, in the crystal structures. So we actually have some collaborations ongoing to try to tie these carrier proteins down and see how they look as they go through their transformations. Well, that's great. It's a really nice demonstration of how these small molecule tools can help not only understanding the biosynthesis of, of these metabolites, but also with structural characterization. Thanks so much, Mike. Uh, we look forward to seeing more of your work in the future. Great. Thank you very much. In a paper by Simon, Feldman, and Chokat, the authors show that a highly conserved DNA protein interface can be re-engineered. They use novel nucleosides and phage display technology to re-engineer the recognition surface between the DNA binding homeo domain and its nucleotide recognition motif. Chokat and colleagues exploited the hydrophobic contact between an isoleucine and the homeo domain and the C5-methyl group of a thymidine in the DNA. Thymidine analogs were synthesized and incorporated into the DNA recognition sequence. Phage display identified mutant homeodomains that were able to bind to the modified DNA. Closer examination of one mutant showed that it behaved similarly to wild-type homeodomains, 
It's quite striking that such a highly conserved interaction interface can be so substantially redesigned and yet retain its structure and function. This reagent is another important tool that scientists can harness to understand how a protein functions within a cellular environment. Daniel Sayet and Lian Hong Sun describe the evolution of a highly sensitive positive feedback loop in bacteria. Positive feedback loops, or PFLs, are attractive tools for regulating gene expression and have many potential applications. These artificial genetic circuits require a tightly regulated, inducible, and non-toxic system. The authors used the LUX-R transcriptional activator to regulate transcription from the P-LUX-I DNA element. This quorum sensing machinery responds to changes in concentrations of 3-oxo-hexanoyl homoserine lactone, or OHHL. Oh. Under wild-type conditions, it takes about six molecules per bacterium for the system to be activated. Here, using an error-prone PCR method to select for better activator proteins, the authors were able to increase the sensitivity by about twofold, so that only three molecules of OHHL per cell were required for activation of transcription. Genetic circuit engineering is a relatively new field that may help us engineer better industrial fermentation systems, as well as to begin to understand the complexity of signals through which many cells interact. In a paper by Rosevatz, Waskolsky, and colleagues, the authors report and evaluate new small molecule inhibitors of P10. P10, or phosphatase intensin homolog deleted on chromosome 10, is a lipid phosphatase that has many important functions within the cell, including the regulation of insulin signaling. Because inhibition of P10 activity increases glucose uptake, this enzyme is an attractive target in diabetes therapy. Using the known structure of the P10 active site and the knowledge that vanadate compounds can inhibit phosphatase activity, the authors developed several new vanadate-based inhibitors. They found that the 3-hydroxypicolinate vanadium-4 complex, VOOH-PIC, was the most potent and specific P10 inhibitor. Cells treated with VOOH-PIC responded as expected. New inhibitors of this type give scientists additional tools for studying cell signaling pathways, which will lead to better understanding of diseases like diabetes, many types of cancer, and many developmental problems. In a paper by Hung, Plo, and colleagues, the authors develop a new activity-based probe for the cysteine protease cathepsin B. Activity-based probes, which are small molecule enzyme inhibitors containing tags that enable visualization of affected proteins, are powerful tools for investigating enzyme activity. However, the presence of the tags can alter inhibitor activity or preclude entry into cells. Their probe, a Zito E64, enters the cell as a precursor with an azide functionality. After entry and enzyme inhibition, a Zito E64 can be selectively biotinylated at the azide group by using a Staudinger ligation chemistry. Using this approach, the authors demonstrated that cathepsin B is labeled by a Zito E64 in immune cells. They further showed that in salmonella-infected macrophages, cathepsin B is excluded from salmonella-containing vacuoles, which play a key role in salmonella's ability to elude destruction by the host. In a paper by Sobhash Pokharel and Peter Beal, the authors studied the biochemical and structural basis for ADAR activity, enzymes that deaminate adenosine and RNA to inosine. Because inosine is decoded as guanosine, this RNA editing process can change the message in the RNA strand and lead to structural diversity in the resulting protein. ADARs are expressed in all animals in a tightly regulated manner. These enzymes play an important role in gene expression in the nervous system. The authors developed a colorimetric high-throughput screen for mutant ADAR and RNA substrate combinations capable and incapable of this type of RNA editing. Since ADAR2 can deaminate within a stop codon to generate a tryptophan codon, the authors positioned the ADAR2 substrate upstream of an alpha-galactosidase gene, such that if RNA editing takes place, green colonies result. Otherwise, 
white colonies grow instead. This screening strategy enables elucidation of the structural and biochemical characteristics of ADAR activity and could facilitate the identification of RNA editing regulators and the engineering of new ADARs with altered properties. Understanding how these enzymes work might shed light on the biochemical basis for such human diseases as epilepsy and depression. This podcast for issues 11 and 12 of ACS Chemical Biology signals the completion of our first volume of the journal. Editor-in-Chief Laura Kiesling, Executive Editor Evelyn Jabry, the rest of the ACS Chemical Biology team, and I want to thank you, our listeners, readers, authors, and reviewers for a fantastic first year. We hope you have learned much from our new features. We are looking forward to publishing our first reviews issue next month. We'll feature reviews on using chemical biology to understand cancer, imaging methods, single molecule techniques, small molecule screens, and proteomic profiling. As the first issue of Volume 2, this collection will be freely available online to all. It's a resource you won't want to miss. This podcast is sponsored by Molecular Devices Corporation, providing devices for cell imaging, lipids handling, and electrophysiology on the web at www.molecularDevices.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. Join us next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about our journal, please visit www.acschemicalbiology.org.